Amen. Um, so we are going to be in John 17 today, and here's the truth. Uh, John 17 is, it's dense. Um, so going through John 17 is almost like trying to empty the Pacific Ocean with a five-gallon uh, bucket. So we're going to make an attempt, and here's the reason I really want us to see the entire chapter in one scope, is because it allows us to see the way that Jesus prays, and even to enter into the overall arcing narrative and significance of the passage itself. So this is going to be our focus for today. So uh, what I want to do, though, as we get started, is I want to ask you guys to stand with me one more time, and I'm going to read the passage for us, and then we're going to make our way through it. John 17, also known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to the heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him all authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now glorify me, Father, in your own presence with your glory, that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given to me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, and that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which was given to me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you that these things I speak into the world, that they may may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As, I sent, as you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And for the sake I consecrate myself, that also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe through the word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you that you also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you love me. Father, I desire they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So uh, people love makeover shows. You notice that? Like lots of makeover shows, transformation shows. There used to be that show where, you know, they'd take an old dilapidated house and then they would, you know, kick the family out or send them to Disneyland for a week. And then a week later, they'd pull the bus away and it'd be, you know, the big reveal. It'd be totally transformed or you'd see the house for what it had become or what it really was. 
or we do this in um, uh, fashion shows, or we do this with lots of housing shows, or we do this even with, um, you know, someone's looks even and appearances. There's always this big reveal, and, and we love that. We love that moment of transformation. We love that moment of revelation, of seeing something for what it really is. Or you can watch like the Antiques Roadshow. I don't know why, but I find myself watching it at times. I enjoy it. And what's great is when someone doesn't realize the value of what they really have. That what appears to be junk or maybe something thrown away or something that they found at a garage sale, when it's revealed for what it really is, there's a sense of astonishment at its true worth. There's a sense of significance. And the truth of the matter is, is you and I, we walk through much of our life hunger, hungry and aching for the big reveal. The big reveal as to why we are here, of what this world is for, of what God is doing in our lives, of who we really are, what we are really capable of, the people around us. There is this hunger, this desire to see things for what they really are. And when we do, it's altogether transformative. It's altogether life-changing when we see something for what it really is. I would argue the thing that transforms us more than anything else is when we find something that is lovely and true and beautiful and significant. That's what motivates and pushes people to fall in love. That's what calls us into new ministries and nonprofits and opportunities is a chance to make an impact, to see something significant occur, to see something different come about. And much of the biblical story hearkens on this same thing, especially when we talk about glory. Now, if you remember back in a long time ago in the Old Testament, in Exodus, especially Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, Moses has brought the Israelites out of Egypt and they've crossed the Red Sea. And that's been a form of baptisms of sort as they become God's people. And now they venture to Mount Sinai where they are about to learn how should we live as God's people. We're used to living as slaves and now we're told we are to live as God's people. They are receiving a new identity, going from addicted slave under law and oppression to God's people. And what does that look like? What would that feel like? How are we to live into this new identity and this new sense of purpose? And so Moses is called to the top of Mount Sinai, and he receives directions or commandments of what it looks like to be God's people. Often they're misinterpreted and thought of just rules, things you're to obey, but rather they are directions of how God's people are to ethically treat one another, to live out being God's people, of what it looks like for humans to flourish under the rule and reign of God. And as this happens, um, the people, the, the Israelites become desperate and a bit afraid And they begin to live into the stories, not of the one true God who brought them out of Egypt, but rather of those around them. And they believe they must have a God there to worship. So they create an idol. They gather all their gold and trinkets and build a calf. And Moses comes down and he freaks out. He throws a temper tantrum and he busts the tablets. And God in his compassion and kindness brings Moses back up. And Moses, maybe having one of those days, and I don't know if you've had one of those days, but saying, I don't know if I'm fit for the task. I'm frustrated with these people. God, I feel as if you've got the wrong guy. So will you please bring me a sense of encouragement? God, I need to know a little bit more about who you are. God, I want to trust you. I want to follow you. But will you show me your glory? What he's really asking is, will you show yourself to me? Will you reveal yourself to me? To me, Because if you just reveal yourself, then I'll, I'll have a deeper sense of emboldened con- confidence that I can follow where you're asking me to go. And God, in his kindness, actually tells Moses, no one can see my face. No one can know who I am. But what I'll do is you hide in that rock over there and you can see me as I pass by. And here we find ourselves a couple thousand years later in John 17, and even as Paul would write in 1 Corinthians, and he tells us this altogether incredible truth. He says that the way that people are transformed, the way that people are really made more into the image of God is that we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that at one time was not able to be seen by people. You have to understand, for a Jewish person to ever think, to even glimpse upon the Most High God is an absolute heresy. It seems outlandish. It seems ridiculous. 
And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up on the scene, and Paul reminds us that what he's really saying is that if you want to see God, if you want to see God revealed, if you want to know what God's like, then look into the face of Jesus Christ. And as you look into the face of Jesus Christ, you will see God and be utterly transformed. Utterly transformed. Jesus' prayer in John 17 is dripping with the petition that we would see God's glory. We have to understand this. We have to see that this is the focus, the obsession, the very purpose and mission of Jesus Christ. And not just in a megalomaniac sense of like Jesus loves or God loves or what it really means to be a Christian is to to constantly just fawning over God as if he's insecure, but rather there's something that happens to you and I as we gaze upon Jesus. There's something altogether transformative as we begin to see who Jesus really is. In fact, that's what we've been doing as we've been walking through the gospel of John all this time, is trying to say, who is Jesus? What does he really look like outside of other people's opinions and conjectures and theories and popular ideas and pop culture opinions? Who really is Jesus Christ? And why is this so important? Because if you get Jesus right, if you see who Jesus is, there's no other response than complete awe and adoration. It's utterly transformative. It's like standing at the top of Mount Rainier and gazing at the beauty in which you see. There's something that you want to drink in. There's something that's been revealed as you see the landscape. Humans are desperate for beauty. Humans are desperate to see things as they really are. So Jesus is petitioning God that we would see him more clearly, that we would see Jesus for who he really is. And if you've been with us throughout John, what you'll see time and time again is people struggle to see who Jesus really is. Even in spite of his miracles and his healings and raising people from the dead and his incredible teaching, people still struggle to see Jesus for who he really is. And so Jesus has five requests. Now like you, I mean, I did it this morning with our engagement team. When you pray, you say, are there any prayer requests? So let's think of this in a sense. These are Jesus' prayer requests. And this is what he says to us. We'll start in verse 1. Looking at verse 5 again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to the heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. So what Jesus is saying is that all along, for the last couple of years, I've been telling you guys over and over and over again, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. In fact, when my mom, back in John 2, wanted me to make some awesome wine, at first she made something that was my problem, that I told her it wasn't my problem, it was because my hour had not come. What was he talking about? Jesus is saying, my hour has not come in the sense that it's not yet time for people to fully see who I am. It's not time for the big reveal. We're not moving the bus away yet. You guys aren't going to get the full glimpse and depiction of who Jesus is. My hour has not come. And he said this repeatedly when he met with the woman at the well, when he met with Nicodemus in John 3. What Jesus was always saying is, okay, it's unfolding, it's unfolding. Here's the trailer, but you guys aren't getting the full experience yet. And all of a sudden, that's dramatically shifted right here. Jesus is now saying, my hour has come. And and what I want more than anything else is I want to be glorified, and I want you to be glorified. And what Jesus is telling us is that the way he will be glorified, that the glorification of Jesus Christ rests solely in what he's about to do, his work, and what it depicts and shows us. Because for Jesus, the cross, the crucifixion, is always, always linked to his ascension and exaltation. And these two things, these things show the glory of who Jesus really is. They show the majesty of who Jesus is. They show the accomplishment and the uniqueness and the preeminence of Jesus Christ, that he alone stands worthy to fulfill God's law, that he alone is a perfect substitute for you and I, that he alone can unite sinner to God. And this is the good news of the gospel. And Jesus wants all to see this. He wants this to be made plain. No more time for riddles. He's not speaking in parables anymore, but he wants to be abundantly clear. We don't often speak of glory. In fact, when we do, it it might sound a little weird. Like if I was to say, you know, go to work tomorrow and glorify your coworker, Ted, you know. You'd be like, I don't even know where to start. What does that mean? Or if I'm going to look and say like, hey, Spencer, I'm going to glorify you. Those are great sunglasses. You got a cool haircut. Like, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing. It's weird. And he's like, now you're putting me on the spot. 
And that's what we sometimes can think of glory as, of adoration of sense. But that's not the way John uses it. John uses it in a completely different way. John's using it in the sense that I've been talking about up to this point. That there's a reveal, a a a revelation, or um, Jesus is being revealed. He's being shown for who he truly is. As people have been confused of who Jesus is. Think once again to John 9. There was a blind man. Remember the blind man? Jesus comes and he heals them. And everyone around, even the religious leaders and his parents, and all of them can agree that something powerful has happened, but none of them are willing to admit who Jesus really is. None of them are willing to admit his authority. None of them are really willing to admit his true identity, except one person, ironically the blind guy. Only the blind man sees Jesus for who he really is. That in and of itself tells us all something altogether spectacular, that what it means to see Jesus isn't necessarily to have the most information to be the smartest person, but rather as we humble ourselves and we see Jesus' work in our lives and we're open to his authority, we begin to see him more clearly. And so it was the blind man that actually saw the revelation, that actually saw who Jesus was. And often what happens to us in our lives, especially in the day-to-day erosion, the task lists, the burdens, the things that we have to get done, is our sin can blind us to the glory of God that's all throughout our lives. It can often choke out our spiritual experiences. We can feel lethargic and tired and frustrated and disinterested and unsatisfied and wondering where God is. And yet there he is, beckoning, praying right now, praying thousands of years ago for you and I, that we would return, that the Holy Spirit would give you and I eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart soft enough that we could see Jesus for who he really is. That is the entire mission of the church. That's why we exist. That's why the church has existed for 2,000 years as the bride of Christ, to reveal Jesus for who he really is. Uh, think of Yoda, for example. Like Yoda was, was that guy, you know, an, in Star Wars, weird-looking green creature, like three feet tall. Looks very unassuming. But what, what was great about Yoda and what was so spectacular and why people liked him is, is it was in the reveal. In the moments where it was shown that this was actually the most powerful, that this was the strongest guy. And when people really began to appreciate and identify with Yoda was when they saw him for who he really was, which was not this strange green puppet creature, but rather this almighty Jedi warrior. And if you were just to look at Jesus, if Jesus was to be here today or we were to be there 2,000 years ago, if we were to see Jesus, none of us would have been impressed. Isaiah 53 tells us that. We would not have been impressed. There was nothing spectacular about Jesus. He wasn't going to end up on People magazine cover for looking great. He was not going to win uh, you know, publishing awards. He didn't have a long list or resume of accomplishments. There was nothing that we would look at Jesus and esteem him for in his ordinary life. But rather the reveal the reveal of who Jesus is. And where does Jesus reveal who he is? In the cross. In the cross. And that's why he says, next couple of verses, starting in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What was the work? The work was to fulfill the law in the place of sinners, so that they might be reconciled to you, so that creation might be restored, so that this world might be redeemed, so that the brokenness would not have to continue, so that suffering would not have the last word, so that death would not have its sting, but rather there would be resurrection for you and I. This was the work that Jesus accomplished, and it glorifies him. It shows us who he really is. He wasn't a guy who did great magic tricks. He wasn't a guy who was just a, a catering service, feeding people free lunches. He wasn't a guy giving out free health care. He wasn't a guy filled with just good wisdom and ticks, tips and tricks on how to get by in life. But rather, he's the God of the universe. He's the one who rules and reigns over everything, who has complete authority over all. And this is his universe. This is made abundantly clear that he rises from the dead. That's why he says, even in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me, and that your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is saying, even before I came to earth, before this world was even made, before the universe was even at its big bang point 14 billion years ago, you and I were together, ruling and reigning, high and mighty, high and exalted. 
And that's who I am. And that's what people need to see. And that's what transforms us. When you and I see who Jesus really is, there's no other response but to worship. There's no other response. That's why when you and I, we stand at a Grand Canyon or we stand before the ocean or we stand before something spectacular, it makes us feel small and rightfully so. It puts us in our place. We go through much of our lives, myself included, feeling much bigger than we really are, much more important than we really are, much more grandiose than we really are. And there's something beautiful about being reminded that our life really is but a mist. And as the grass withers and the flowers fade, so does your life, and it goes by like that. And as you get older, you begin to feel that more and more and more. You feel the days tick by. Jesus is saying, I I rule and reign over all space and time, and I'm revealing that to all of you. So this is the purpose of Jesus. That's why glory is such a big deal. Glory, when you think of glory, think of the final revealing, the big unfolding, the true depiction of who Jesus is. That's why we have just kind of called this series for fun, Jesus No Filter so that we'd see Jesus clearly for who he is. And in your hearts, in those places right now where Jesus feels distant and Jesus feels far away, or maybe you're just considering Jesus, or you're here today, and a lot of this sounds completely new to you, we're just glad you're here. What I'll say to you is, press in. Remember Jesus said in John 10, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What he's saying is, you can come to me, And as you do, I will reveal myself to you. I'm not playing hide and seek. I'm not playing games with you. I love you. I'm for you. His presence is with you. God is concerned about you. God cares about you. God knows the burdens that you're wrestling with. He knows the fears that are in your life. He knows the choices and the obstacles that you face. And Jesus is with you. And as we see that, as we get a bigger picture that that God is good, that God is glorious, that God is capable, and that God is altogether worthy of our worship, you and I become transformed. This is why Paul talks about in the book of Romans that you and I will be conformed, conformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. And how do we become conformed? Not through your hard work, not through your good deeds, not even through your quiet time, although those are all great things. But the way you become conformed is you look upon the glory of Jesus You look upon the face of Jesus Christ, and in the face of Jesus Christ, you see what every person in the Old Testament ached to see, which is the revealing of God. Friends, this is is amazing news. This is altogether transformative news. And so Jesus goes on in verses 6 through 15. He gives us two more of his prayer requests, two more of his prayer requests. First one he mentions, oh, I want to share this quote with you. Sorry, guys, I got ahead of myself. C.S. Lewis, sorry, this is great, too. I, I, love, I always love throwing a C.S. Lewis quote in there, so bear with me, all right? So he says, the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely, from this point of view, the promise of glory and the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all of our lives will open at last. C.S. Lewis makes this point so well. It's what I've been saying for the last couple of minutes, but C.S. Lewis is way more eloquent than I am. That your heart's desires, the places where you ache, the places where you wrestle with those questions of where is God, what is he doing, are found in the love of God, which shows itself in the glory of God. And so Jesus goes on and he gives us two more of his prayer requests in verses 16 through 15. I'll have it up here for you. You guys can also look um, in the Bibles if you want. And he says, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. What Jesus is saying here and what he wants us to see is that as as, as he's leaving, because Jesus is saying, I'm about to depart, I'm about to go. And th- these are tied together, the next two. I'm about to depart, I'm about to go. I'm not going to be with these people, these guys anymore. But I love them. He's praying for these 11 guys. And he knows, Jesus knows how traumatic it's going to be for him to depart. Over the last three years, these men, these 11 men have given their lives to Jesus. They've trusted him entirely. And what's about to happen will be quite traumatic for them. 
And what Jesus is saying is, over the last couple of years, I've, I've kept them, God, because they belong to you. They belong to us. For John, this, this holding fast to the reality of who they belong to is Jesus saying that, that these are your people, Father. And you have been so gracious in saving them and awakening them and showing them who I am. And I want you to continue to do that. And we've lost none of them except Judas, who was never amongst them. So keep them. Keep them in your name. And even in the word name, there's a sense of glory once again. Of glory. Why? Because what's the name of God? The name of God is the, the renowned of God, of who he really is, his identity once again. And it's saying, if we know the name of God, which once again, even in the Old Testament, you would not even have uttered the name of God. Because it was considered too intimate. It was considered too informal. It was considered way too personal. So you would have never said the name of God. So name is another say that we actually get to know the name of God. We get to know who he is. And this God is Jesus Christ. And Jesus' second prayer request in 6 through 15 is keep them from the evil one. Keep them from the evil one. You and I have a, a real enemy, an enemy that would seek to kill and destroy, and for many of us, just dull our affections for God. That would make religion quite boring. That would make our relationship with Jesus seem perfunctory or obligatory or just another thing that we should go through the motions I think for a lot of us, and a great book to read, um, C.S. Lewis's um, uh, Screwtape Letters, he highlights this so well, that for a lot of us, uh, that our, our enemy, the devil, is not so much concerned with pushing you into a, uh, an, an incredible sin or an area of complete folly and rebellion, because he'll settle for you just to be numb and dull in your everyday life. He'll settle for you just to come home, watch three hours of television, make a pot pie, and go to bed. And he'll be perfectly happy with that. He'll settle for you even going to church once a week, but not really being known by any other believers, or using your spiritual gifts, or repenting of your sin, or loving your neighbor, or living on mission. He'll settle for that. Our enemy, in some ways, wants to dull our affections. He wants us to not see clearly. He wants us to forget the glory of Jesus Christ. And this evil one has a sense of authority over this world. And that's what Jesus means when he says here that he wants us, as we remain in the world, to not be of the world. And a lot of you, if you've been in church, you've probably heard this phrase many times. What does it mean to be in the world but not of the world? Well, over the last couple of weeks, we've also talked about what does John mean when he says world? He's not talking about geography. What he's referring to is the collective opposition against the rule and reign of God. So anything that opposes the rule and reign of God, and mainly that's you and I, as we refuse to look at God and say, your will be done, but rather, God, my will be done. And instead of God, me worshiping you and bending my knee, what I'd rather have is I'd worship myself or something in this world that seems to be more satisfying. That is what he means by the world. If we're honest, there's a temptation and a pull inside every one of us and also a great ability to justify and to create excuses in which we can easily begin to worship our possessions or another purpose or another accomplishment or even a sense of our own abilities and self-worth. All these beautiful things, even from the awesome kids that we have at Redemption Church to the stuff that God's given us to the jobs that we have, these good things can become bad things when we try to make them God things. And when good things become God things, they become the worst things. And when good things become God things, they become in opposition to God. What Jesus is saying, once again, if you want to see my glory, and this is why he's so passionate, he's begging God over and over and over again, God, let people see my glory. Let, me, let it be displayed in the cross because I know what's going to happen in their lives. Just like the Israelites, they're going to be so tempted to build golden calves. They're going to be so tempted to base their identity, their significance, and get their story from something else other than the gospel. We sang it this morning, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And there's not one of us in this room that doesn't have those moments where we say, Lord, I, I'm prone to wonder. It's Wednesday, the car broke down, my boss is a whatever you want to call him or her, traffic's bad, kids are whining, prone to wonder 
prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Lord, if I could only have peace. Lord, if my kids would just finish their dinner without asking them 28 times. Lord, if we could just find the right school for them. Lord, if you would just transfer me to a different department. Lord, if you would just open this door. Lord, if I just wasn't alone anymore. Fill in the blank. Whatever your functional Savior becomes, it keeps you and blinds you from seeing the true glory of Jesus Christ. And that is the only thing, friends, that will actually satisfy you. Nothing else really will. Only the glory of God, because it's what you were made for. And every single day, you and I wake up, and whether we like to admit it or not, we're not nearly as autonomous as we think we are, and we don't decide our own agendas, and we don't decide what we are for or why people are here. Because you and I, we're creatures of habit. We're formed every day by the habits we do and the things that we give ourselves over to. Think about this for a second. Um, Every single one of us in this room we're probably wearing what we're wearing because of the influence of someone else. I mean, for the most part, everyone in here is wearing kind of button-up shirts and jeans and things of that nature. Now, if we were to go to another part of the globe, they would be wearing something completely different. Why? Because of the social pressures around them. Every single day, you guys have friends, you have communities, there's entertainment, there's marketing, there's magazines, there's coworkers, there's societal pressure to shape and conform you, to mold you, to create your values. I mean, it's, it's much more common nowadays for people to have tattoos. Why? It's just a different value. But some of that is shaped just by what we see around us, what we experience, what we believe. If you go back to the 50s, usually that was for people that were just in the Navy. But it's a different reality. And how did that happen? You didn't just wake up one day and be like, you know what, I've never seen a tattoo, never encountered a tattoo, never known anyone with a tattoo. I'm just going to go get one. But rather, it's this slow impression that marks us. Or why do we buy the cars we buy? Or why do we consume what we consume? Or why do we develop the habits that we develop? Well, those around us impress upon us. Those around us shape us. And so if you're a Christian and you think that you don't need community and you don't need other believers and you can't give them access to your soul and really let them in your life and that you're really going to follow Jesus, you're fooling yourself because you are being discipled. You are being impressed upon. You are being conformed. It's just not by Christ. It's by the world. That makes all the difference in the world. You and I are relational, social, habitual beings. And Jesus is begging, he's encouraging, he's petitioning that we would come and see who he really is, the big reveal in the cross of Christ. Now there's one question here that I just want to answer really briefly that often gets tied up into this too, and this goes back to even Christians and culture. Uh, there's been entire books written about this. In fact, if you ever want a, a deeper dive study, Ron Hold Niebuhr has a book called Christ and Culture where you can see some of the different views Christians have had over the centuries. But I'll just say this, just as a real quick reminder. When we think of Christians and culture, Christians often make a couple different mistakes. One is to become monastic or to become sectarian, to withdraw. So there was a point, like we often think of like, man, the church back in uh, a couple hundred years ago, they had it all together. It seemed like they had it more right than us. Well, the world was actually much more dark and the morals and values and beliefs of the world around the church in the 12th and 13th and 14th century was much more grim even than it is today. And so many of the Christians, what they felt compelled to do was to set up these monasteries, a place where people could actually be holy because there was no way you could be holy and remain in the filth of the world. So what you really need to do was withdraw and separate yourself. I could go on a rant about certain things people do now. I won't, but I'm sure you guys can think of parallels of what Christians do today with that mindset. How you can want to withdraw, how you can want to remove yourself, how you can want to separate for the sake of remaining clean or holy or whatever it might be. Or on the other end, what we've seen even over the last hundred years or so is many denominations and churches go full accommodation as they seek to assimilate or in some ways win the approval of the city and the world around them, where they want to kowtow and bow to the pressures of maybe even certain political forces or new mores and values, or even the academy. And that is equally as much of a mistake. Sometimes the desire to love the city becomes a desire in which we worship the city. And when Jesus tells us to seek the welfare of the city and to love the city and to care for the city, what he's really saying is remain a city on a hill in which you speak the truth in love, in which you remain somewhat distinct so that your life 
can be a light. And so there's a tension. Here's a phrase some missiologists talk about. They say, it's good to think of ourselves as indigenous pilgrims. Indigenous pilgrims. So that you and I still have a foot inside of this world. We're familiar with this world. It's not as if we're going to completely change all of our practices and behaviors tomorrow and stop driving automobiles because we became Christians or using electricity. So we're still in the world, but we're not of the world. What that means is the way the world walks, the values it walks to, we don't walk in step with that anymore. The note that the world sings, we sing a different key, maybe even off key. I don't know. Just different. We don't sing in the same key. When the world does a line dance, we do a different one to a degree. We're, in a sense, out of step. And that's okay because this world is not our home. You and I have a home in which we get to gaze upon Jesus Christ. We get to look upon Jesus Christ. That is where you and I belong. C.S. Lewis also speaks of this, that inside each and every one of us is an ache is an ache for something more. And that ache actually tells you that you were made for something more. And that desire, that desire to have a sense of peace or shalom, as the Old Testament calls us, tells us that there's a God who's waiting for us. So in the meantime, you and I think of ourselves as indigenous pilgrims. We belong in this world. We try to love this world. We try to care for those around us. But at the same time, we realize that this is not our home. Next petition that Jesus makes in verse 17. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. So this is an interesting passage. If you read this at first, it can seem as if Jesus is asking to be sanctified, but we know that's not true because what it means to be sanctified is that you're becoming more and more and more progressively like Jesus Christ, right? You're becoming more like Jesus. So how would it be possible for Jesus to become more like Jesus? doesn't make sense. So it's clearly not what it's saying. What the Greek's actually telling us there is that sanctified in this passage is being used in a way of set apart, to set something apart. Often we can think of something that's set apart as it being better, but that's not the connotation here either. What it means to be set apart is that it has a purpose, such as a lot of you. I'm sure when you got up this morning, you either used a comb or a brush for your hair, right? Anyone in here? A few people? Comb and brush? I bet you didn't use it to eat your cereal. Did you? Did anyone use their comb? And Why would you not do that? Well, it's obvious, right? That's not its purpose. That's not its function. A comb and a brush has been set apart for your hair. A spoon has been set apart to eat cereal or to eat food. And it's being used for its purpose. Or your car. Your car did a great job of getting you here this morning, but it'd, be a terrible it'd do a terrible job if you tried to drive it into Green Lake as an aquatic vehicle. That's not its purpose. That's not its function. And what Jesus is saying is there's a very clear purpose that I've been given. My purpose is clear. My function, my reason is clear. My purpose is to go to the cross. And what he's saying is, Lord, I want you to continue to sanctify my people as well in their purpose. In their purpose. And friends, this should be altogether good news for you and I. It means that your life matters. It means even in those days and those moments in time where you wonder, where is my life going? Does my life really matter? Does it really count? The answer is unequivocally yes. Jesus is saying that you've been set apart that you have a purpose, that you've been bought with a price, that you belong to him because you've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You've been set apart. Just as I'm sure some of you had moms who had good china, and it was set apart. It wasn't used for everyday purposes. It's been set apart. And Jesus is saying, I hope my people remember this. I hope they remember that they've been set apart to live a life on mission, a life that matters. That as you and I go to work, we don't go to work just so we get a paycheck every two weeks, but rather we go to work because we know that in the way we work, that the way we live our lives is a fragrant offering of worship to our God. Martin Luther did an incredible job of reminding the church that we didn't need monasteries, but rather the most holy thing you could do is wash the dishes. That if you wanted to be close to God, you could do the very things in which he had right there before you. And you could be deeply encouraged by that because in that act, in that act of obedience and faithfulness, that very ordinary act, you were beginning to see more and more who Jesus is 
by being set apart for his great purposes. So what does sanctification also mean? It means that as we see and read his word, his word, what is his word? You guys remember all the way back to John 1? It was a long time ago, like a year. But it was John 1. How does John use the word word? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. What John is saying, what Jesus is saying here is that the word here, once again, is all about being revealed. The way, the way that you and I are transformed, what's true, what really sanctifies us, what sets us apart, once again, is seeing Jesus for who he really is. And where do you and I go? Where do you and I need to turn regularly and constantly to see who Jesus is? We go to his word, because this is his revelation. This is where God reveals himself, so we no longer speculate, but we see God clearly. And here's the thing. I, I know for lots of folks, I, and I'm right there with you, there's times where reading my Bible or even coming to a passage almost feels like, like, like it's just running right off me, like Teflon, like nothing's sinking in, nothing's making sense, I'm not understanding anything. And what I'll say is, is God's word and the revealing of God rewards those who linger, rewards those who are willing to dig down deep and mine the depths of God's revelation. The Bible is not impossible to understand, but it rewards those who linger and mine and wrestle with the text. Rewards those who are willing to stay steadfast to a passage until it does begin to make sense, where they ask the deep questions, where they pay attention to the work of the Holy Spirit in their life and what the Spirit might be wrestling up inside of them. This is why Drew even mentioned this week, this is why we have DNA groups, because they're a beautiful environment for people to come and wrestle with the text. And the thing about the Bible, up until the printing press, reading the Bible was almost always a communal activity. There weren't individual Bibles for everyone. The average Christian has over four Bibles in their homes. Before the printing press, every city was lucky if they had a book of the Bible. But we have an embarrassment of Bibles, and sometimes I think we forget the real beauty of the Bible is it's meant to be read with other brothers and sisters. And as you do that, there's an engagement as the Holy Spirit speaks to them and speaks to you through God's Word in which we encourage one another, in which the Word comes more and more alive. And that's why we do DNA groups. And God sanctifies you. God sets you apart. God gives you a new purpose. You've been adopted into the family of God because of the cross of Christ. And as we gaze upon Jesus and see him more clearly, we are transformed. Next petition. We'll go through these a little bit quicker. I want to be here still. One of unity. Jesus prays that we would be one. He starts with a Trinitarian declaration. Let's not forget that the God we worship is one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three essence, one person. If you think about it too long, it might make your head explode, but that's what the Bible teaches us. And you would actually expect a God who made the universe would have some parts of him that would be hard for us to understand, right? If he could make sense to you and I, I don't know if that'd be a God that we would be inclined to worship but rather there's parts of him that are mysterious and hard for us to understand. But what we learn about God is that he's altogether relational and that he's triune in nature and that he's been enjoying relationships since the foundation of the earth and that he wants, he desires for his church, the local church, us here at Redemption, but also the broader church, the universal church that's meeting all over the world right now, singing songs in different languages and different customs and different different venues than this, to be one. To be, around what though? What unites us? What bonds us together? What holds us together? It can't just be that we like the same beer and we root for the same sports teams. It has to be something more profound. It has to be something more significant. It has to be something more lasting. Uh, I don't know about you guys. I played a lot of sports growing up, and there was always like one person on the team that you you just didn't like, for whatever reason. Like, just they're weird, they were annoying, maybe you just had to spend way too much time on the bus with them, they would say things that made you just want to hit them or something like that, or next time you had practice, give them a little elbow, but you just didn't like them. You, you know, if, if you weren't on the same team, you wouldn't associate with them, you wouldn't have talked to them, you wouldn't have been around them, you just, just didn't like them. Um, but here was the thing, I had a guy like that on my basketball team, his name was Kevin, and I just, I didn't like Kevin. If I saw him at school, I ignored Kevin, um, if I saw Kevin at a party, I didn't want to talk to Kevin. I didn't, I didn't even like looking at Kevin. Um, 
I know. That's why, that's why God saved me, okay? So I needed it. And so I, I did not like Kevin. But here's the thing. If Kevin and I, if we were on the same court together, I would go to blows for Kevin. I would have fought for Kevin. I was right there with Kevin. If anyone on the other team would have tried to pick with Kevin, they would have had to go through me. Might not have taken him much, but they would have had to go through me. And the reason I'm saying this is that's the truth of what it means to be unified. Unified around a mission. Unified around a value. Unified for us around a person and his work as we see more clearly who Jesus really is. As you and I come in and we sing songs of adoration and we hear God's word proclaimed and he transforms our hearts and the Holy Spirit gets a hold of us, you and I are united with one another. And what unites us is that you and I are united to Christ. And as we're united to Christ, we're united to one another. Now, this doesn't mean that we're uniformed. It doesn't mean that you and I are always going to think and feel and believe or dress or have the same hobbies or whatever it might be. We're not uniformed. In fact, the church is at its best when it beautifully displays diversity, when it shows different races, when it shows different people groups, when the nations sing songs to God. And if you don't like that, if maybe diversity is not your thing, then you'll hate heaven. Because there'll be people singing in all sorts of different languages of all sorts of different skin colors. But we will be united around the reality that we have union with Christ, that we've been reconciled to God. That's what we're united in. Our unity comes through our union with Christ. And Jesus prays for that. And as we are united, I'll say this, it's the most powerful testament we can give to the world around us that doesn't know Jesus. Those around us who don't know Jesus, there's often times where they want to have lots of logical proofs and apologetic arguments about the existence of God and get into the teleological argument and talk Aquinas or maybe dive into the cosmology argument, cosmological argument. But you know what really transform them, transforms them is when they see the gospel with flesh on. When they see God's people who have nothing in common whatsoever, encouraging one another, crying with one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, remaining with one another. That's what transforms. It's a beautiful testament to who God is and what he calls us to be. Last petition, last prayer request that Jesus makes, and stunning. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is praying and saying, I hope there's a sense of unity, that they, these people will be with me, that these people realize I want to be with them. So God didn't just save you because he had to, but God saved you because he wants you to be with him. You are welcome. You're not a begrudging guest, but rather you are an invited, esteemed guest brought into a new family. And this is where Jesus blows me away, and I find this to be one of the most incredible things in all of the Bible. Verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these that know you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Have you ever felt that you're having a moment or an experience that you're unable to savor as much as you'd want. I used to climb 14ers um, in Colorado. There's, there's 50 mountains that are above 14,000 feet when I lived there. And every time I got to the top, um, and it was hard. I, I'm not good at climbing. It's usually after lots of huffing and puffing and, you know, stops along the way. And, and I, sometimes I'd do it begrudgingly. You know, I'd, just, I'd, I'd make my way up there. But when I got up there, I would look around and I'd see the other peaks and I'd see the sun and I'd see the landscape before me and I almost felt as if I could not fully grasp that moment, as if I could not fully drink it in, as if there was something about my capacity to experience joy, to experience love that was somehow insufficient for this moment, that I was not truly capable of grasping what I was observing, that what I was a part of, I was not fully able to embrace, that I wanted more and more and more of it. I wanted to see the beauty. I wanted to be part of the beauty. I wanted to have a deeper sense of this beauty. 
Maybe you've had that in a meal. Maybe mountain climbing is not your thing. Maybe you've had that in a meal where you've eaten a steak and you're just like, how can I savor every last delicious bite? I don't know. Maybe if you're a vegan, it's asparagus. Uh, I can't imagine, (laughs) but maybe someone's had that experience with asparagus. Or, you know, uh, how about this week when it was amazing in Seattle? The sun was shining. There was no breeze. It wasn't too hot out. And you're just looking around, and I just saw my girls, and I'm just like, how do I just freeze time and stay right in this moment until I fully soaked it up? I just can't. I just can't. There's something in my capacities. They're finite. They're limited to not be able to fully embrace all the beauty and glory that I see all the time. I think about it almost um, like this phone. They're starting to say phones nowadays. They have so many pixels in them that the human eye can no longer even detect all of them. Like, it's almost a vain pursuit. They're adding more and more pixels, even though our eyes have reached their limit of what we can perceive. We've reached our capacities for how many pixels we can sink in, but, you know, Apple still needs to shove more in there. And, and the truth is, is what Jesus is saying here is that you guys can see about 100 pixels and the glory and the beauty and the majesty of my creation and redemption and restoration that awaits is a thousand times more pixels and you guys don't even have the capacities or the abilities yet to fully see them and experience them. He's saying your senses have not even seen anything yet. Wait till they really come alive in the new heaven and the new earth. And what he's saying here, this is, this is what I want you guys to see in verse 26 again. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me. So we're not talking the way in which I can love someone or my capacities to love someone, which we already established are quite limited. But Jesus is saying is that the very way that God, God the Father, loves Jesus in infinite capacity will now be available to you and I. This is like getting upgraded from a gas tank that holds 20 gallons to a gas tank that holds a million gallons. The beauty the senses, the capacities to love and experience joy and peace and satisfaction, Jesus will continue to enhance and deepen and awaken as you and I walk through this life. And when you and I see Jesus face to face on our day of glorification, here's what Jesus is promising because this prayer is for you and I. It's not for people 2,000 years ago. You and I are in the Bible. We're in John 17. The prayer is, is that what you and I see now is but a sliver of the glory and the joy and the love and the happiness and the pleasure and the satisfaction that we will experience in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus is altogether, infinitely, perfectly more satisfying than anything this world could ever offer. And that's why it is absolutely insane to worship anything in the creation when the creator is offering himself. God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. This is his glory, and this is our desire.